Programming is supported by Topline Construction Firm, your local women-owned roofing contractor based out of Shoreview, Minnesota. Roof replacement, both retail and insurance work. More information at toplineconstructionfirm.com. You're listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. If you want to listen to us in real time, stream our show at nprnews.org backslash listen live every weekday at 9 a.m. Central. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover 2020, a show about who we are in tumultuous times. This election year series is about identity, how our roots and our communities and our life experiences inform the way we think about issues and candidates. Today, who are we if we're not farmers? Farming is as essential to the Midwestern identity as hockey rinks and deep cold lakes. But Minnesota and Wisconsin lead the nation in farm failures, and 2019 was tough, with President Trump's trade war, low crop prices, and uncooperative weather. This hour, what it means to lose a family farm and what it means to run one. As our guests join us, your experience is really essential to the conversation. If you run a family farm, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how farming is inextricably linked to the American ideal. And if you've left a family farm, what did it mean to give it up, especially if the farm is part of your family's identity? So if you're still on a farm, running a family farm, I'd really love to hear what you have to say about how farming symbolizes the American ideal And if you've had to leave a family farm, had to sell off the equipment and the herds, and you've given up on raising crops, I'd like to know what it meant to give it up, particularly if the farm is part of your family's identity. Here's the phone number, 651-227-6000, anywhere we are in the upper Midwest, and on Twitter, at Carrie NPR. We're beginning with Jenny Patnode. She and her husband had a Wisconsin dairy farm until the summer of 2017, and she joins us today from Menominee, Wisconsin. Jenny, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. How are you? Doing well. I, I've I've spent some time thinking about that essay that you wrote on the eve of selling off the dairy cows. This was the summer of 2017. And yes. I thought I'd I thought I'd quote from some of the things you wrote. You said, "We envisioned this life: our kids growing up, playing in the hay mountain, bottle feeding the calves. We pictured our memories in this little red barn." I am curious about how farming looked when you joined the family, when you and your husband got married, and you saw your life being settled on this farm. How did it look then? Yeah, wow. Even just you reading that this morning, I was talking yesterday to the producer. That brings back so much emotion, just hearing you say that. But um, when we took over the farm, I think that's kind of in our area. There was 10 family farms in our own neighborhood. And when we ended up selling out, probably 15 years later, we were only one of two left wow. just in our oh little gosh. neighborhood. So that can kind of tell you 
where it's going and since then the last farm in our neighborhood they've actually sold out to. So they're all gone. Yes. Yep. Fourteen from when you yes. when you joined the family. Your husband yes. your husband was a fourth generation to farm on his family's land. So I mean, when it looked like you were going to be able to sustain the farm, how did your husband think about what it meant, you know, to carry on this generational legacy and be a farmer? Oh, he was so excited. Um, He remembers, you know, as a child growing up and his great grandpa had started the farm. And and then it was kind of like, and like I said, in this neighborhood, everybody was a farmer. And he was just really excited to be able to take that over. And of course, he grew up working alongside his grandpa and his dad, and so to be able to carry that on of what his great-grandpa had started really meant a lot to him, and I feel like that was his identity, and so many farm families, and I think farmers can relate to that, is uh, when you grow up on the farm, you know, the family farm, that just becomes who you are. It's more than just your job or your career. It's actually ingrained in who you are from a a young child. So I I want to understand that better when you say it's who you are. I mean, does that also come with, I help produce the food that makes this country work? I mean, is it, is it not just, this is what we do in our family and this is very familiar. Is it also some kind of larger obligation to, as I suggested, you know, in the introduction, some kind of American ideal. Yeah, I, you know, I think so. I mean, and I didn't grow up, so not speaking for him, but I feel like there's a huge sense of accomplishment and a sense of purpose that he talked about Mm -hmm. when you are contributing to America's food and production. And, you know, this is just a part of your life. For him, it was a sense of purpose too. And so to lose all of that, you take away your identity and then you take away your purpose as well. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Here's John on Twitter who says, fifth generation dairy farmer here. It used to mean I had a set of shared experiences and shared values within Mm -hmm. a strong community. Not anymore. I have nothing in common with mega dairy farms or corn, corn, soybean farmers. Jenny, let's talk a bit about this idea of shared experiences and shared values. That that sense okay. of purpose that you talked about your husband experiencing was something that he probably didn't really need to talk about with the other farmers in the region, but they recognized it, right? They understood it. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, you walk into a, a group of farmers and it's like they get each other. And not growing up on a dairy farm, it took me a little bit to recognize that, but It's a sense of the words don't even need to be spoken, but they understand. They understand what each other is going through. They understand the hardships. They understand what it feels like when you lose a cow or you lose an animal. They understand what it's like to get up. um, I mean, we're in Minnesota and Wisconsin this morning. It's below zero. Hmm. They understand that they have to get up and, and go take care of the farm. And so there is a sense of connection, I think, within that. Let me take some calls here for you, Jenny, to Lauren in Lake Wilson, Minnesota. Hi, Lauren. What's your experience with this? You've been listening to how Jenny has put it this morning. Yes? Yeah. Good morning. Um, 
I just had a little, no, I, we are farming on my husband's family farm um, in Southwest Minnesota. I grew up on my family farm in, in Iowa and which is still, um, well, it's being farmed by somebody else now. And we are a corn and soybean farmer. So it's, it's kind of a different animal, no pun intended from, from dairy <laughs> and livestock. But um, I think um, what's so hard about all of this and the nostalgia of family farming is that agriculture is an industry just like every other industry that changes and evolves and we have technology and it, I think it's hard to let go of that notion that the harder our gen- the generations before us, the harder they worked, it was like that was rewarded where now the industry has changed and shifted so much that we now have to work smarter instead of harder. And that's in our culture, that's in our mindset that if we work hard, we should be able to provide for our family and make a living from this. And um, it's hard to let go of that. Um, But I think, you know, from a mental health perspective, we know that's a big deal right now. Like, you know, it's, it, it, it feels harsh to say, but I think as a community, like an agricultural community, we need to to almost shift our, you know, mindset to um, this is a business. It is also a way of life, but, um, you know, we need to evolve and, and change it. Not saying that people don't and don't still make it, but, you know, that, that mentality is, is hard to let go of because it is part of the culture. Jenny, what do you think about mm-hmm. that? Yeah, it's very, it's really interesting. And I do agree a lot with that. So this is kind of fast forwarding, but where my husband is at right now, he actually took a position now as a high school agriculture teacher. So he had farmed his whole life and now he's been an agriculture teacher the last two years. And exactly what Lauren is saying is he now teaches an egg business class uh, where they talk more about, okay, how can we farm smarter and use our technology to better create a business. And, you know, it's really nice when you can create that family business aspect, but to also be able to, like she said, work smarter and not harder. And there's a lot of good technology coming out to allow, I think, um, farmers to do that. But oftentimes, and, and she might agree with this too, with crop prices going down and we see the egg industry and prices continuing to go down, sometimes for farmers, it's so hard to be able to buy into that technology that they do need. And that's kind of where we found ourselves at is that we knew we had to get that new technology, but with farm prices, you just can't afford what you need. You know, I think about um, the fact that Lauren used the word nostalgia, and and this is something as I was thinking about the course that the conversation would take that, you know, farmers really occupy a place in the American imagination. Um, You know, farmers are kind of symbolic as to we hold them up as symbols of right of who we are. And, And part of that, you know, part of that inevitably is going to be nostalgic. But mm-hmm. I, I hear Lauren saying and you saying that the reality of that, there's a whole other side to the nostalgic symbolism of this. And it's not a very pretty picture at the moment. Right. Yeah. I I think farmers have been forced almost into that because the everything is changing and the economy is changing and the world is so much faster paced. I remember 
you know, the nostalgia of it. I remember when we first got married, our the farmer down the road, she had chickens. And so she would give us eggs for a trade of milk. And then she would use her chicken's eggs and our milk from the farm, and she would bake bread for us, and she would then bring us a loaf of bread. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how, that's how it was, and so it's that nostalgia. And I feel like where our society is now, we're just in a much faster pace of society. And so, like I said, farmers are continually have to change with the technology and grow, which is great. But I think because of that fast pace, we're losing a little bit of that neighbors connecting with neighbors kind of thing. This is Flyover 2020, as we do every Thursday morning here through the election season. And today, we're talking about how farming is so integral to the identity of the Midwest, what's going on with family farms, what it means to lose a farm. Jenny Patnode has some experience with that, she and her husband and her family, but also what it means to come into farming. We're going to talk with Hannah Breckville. She's the co-owner of Humble Hands Harvest Farm in Decorah, Iowa. She's going to tell us about coming into the business and and uh, adapting with all of the things that we're raising this morning in the conversation. I'd love to know if you run a family farm, how you think farming is really inextricably linked to this American idea If you've left a family farm, well, that's the other side of this, right? The nostalgia doesn't really get at how difficult it is today to run a family farm. So what was it like to give it up, particularly if the farm has been part of your family's legacy for a long time? 800-242-2828-651-227-6000 in the Metro and in Minnesota. And on Twitter, at Carrie NPR, listener here says, still vividly remember the day when Grandpa retired from farming with no family to take over the farm. The auction to sell off equipment, buildings, and land was a somber affair with many of us grandkids wandering around in a strange mix of anxiety, regret, and reminiscence. Jenny, I understand that your husband yeah. still goes down and stands in the field sometimes and kind of looks yeah. out over the land. Is that right? Yeah. Well, you know, and we we were really lucky at the time when we sold out. We, we weren't at a place where we had to go bankrupt, and I feel so bad for those people who have worked their whole lives and generations and end up going bankrupt. Um, We sold out where we were actually able to keep at least the cropland. So we still have some acres of that, but he does go down to that empty barn. And that's what I, you know, that's what I wrote about in that blog post. I just hearing your comment from Twitter that night was so hard. And I think so many people can relate to that with, the last milking that I talked about, um, you know, realizing that your dream is, is not going to happen to continue this. And I remember that night he, he kept, every farmer will say they have their favorite cow or their favorite Mm -hmm. animal. Mm -hmm. And he kept that favorite cow until last. And, um, and I remember him just kneeling next to her. And as soon as he was done milking her, he just dropped. And he, he, all of his weight fell under her and he just stopped. And so I still relate to that, you know, that comment that you just read. That is the feeling. That's the feeling because it's just this huge sense of not only loss of who you are and the nostalgia of it, but 
a great sense of loss of these animals that you've cared for, this land that you've cared for, for so long that you've put in your heart and soul and your sweat into, and to then just have it all, it's just done. And so that was probably one of the hardest moments that we had to go through was that last night of milking our cows. Uh, Jenny's blog post uh, that night was called The Last Milking. It went viral, um, and we'll put a link to it on our page. If you've just gotten in on the show and you've missed some of the conversation, you can find it uh, on the podcast, and you can also go to NPR News with Carrie Miller online and check out the blog post and the details of the show. To the phones to Daniel in Hutchinson. Hi, Daniel. Thanks so much for waiting. Hi, Carrie. How are you? Doing well. Glad you called. What are you thinking about? Well, so I just want to say to to Jenny, I've I read her her post about that, and I've read so many other other articles like that that have come out in the last year or two about family farms, uh, you know, ending. And I'm standing in a 1931 chicken coop that was <laughs> built on our farm that I grew up on. And, you know, I, I didn't know the people that built this farm, but I, you know, I've talked to so many old farmers around this area that are, that are sadly dying off. And they would tell me that there was 18 by 52 building like this. That was very common back then for a chicken barn. It probably held 500 laying chickens. And from what I understand, like you could build a building like this and pay for it within about five years from egg sales. Whereas today, there's just no way that that would ever work. And I'm standing here in this building that we've converted to a to a a learning center because we want to have young people come out and families come out and actually learn where food comes from. Because unfortunately, as I'm standing in it and I'm looking around our 96 acres here on New Story Farm, all around us are are farms where the old farmers have died recently Mm -hmm. and their their children don't want to farm and they've just rented it out to a big egg farmer that runs about 10,000 acres. And as Jenny said, you know, we have a lot of emotional connection to our animals and our land because of us. It's, it's a matter of scale. Like people that run 10,000 acres can't have that level of connection. And I think that's why urban people really have that, um, that emotional, that, that cultural heritage where we think that we, we romanticize right. small family farms because of that connection that, that, big farmers don't have or big industry don't have. You know, and I just, want it, to, I just want to say, Carrie, the one last thing before I go is, is that every article that comes out, it's, it's read by millions of people that, that understand what is being lost. And I just feel like even if 5% of them actually understood how much power they have as consumers to well, change Daniel, that, that's, that's actually, time. that's exactly what I wanted to ask you about. You sound mm-hmm. like you're saying, hey, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be this way, and consumers have some power in this. So w- what is that? I feel like that's where we, we, we talk about it as if it's like nothing, nothing we can do. It's right. It's a foregone conclusion that it's going to become more industrialized, but but if people put their money where their mouth is and actually bought from small-scale farmers like us at New Story Farm, this would turn around within a few years. Because right now, young people, like we, we're, we're actively seeking young people to come and share this land and, and help them buy land across the street, across the road, and help sh- you know, share all of our infrastructure. 
there's no young people forthcoming because there's no money in this. And so if we don't mm-hmm. make this financially feasible for young people, it is a foregone conclusion. But that takes people spending their money. Jenny, what do you think of that, that um – you know, again, consumers like to like the symbol and like to romanticize, but don't exercise the power that they have. Did did you find that? Yeah. Well, first of all, I love that he's turning that into a learning center because I feel like that's such an important thing is that we need to educate people where your food is coming from. So many people don't know that. And um, even my husband is an agriculture teacher finds that, you know, some some kids, they don't understand that. And like you said, to be able to buy local, I actually, shortly after we had um, shortly after we had sold our cows, I went to Walmart to buy a gallon of milk. Cause again, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't have the milk on the farm. Right. And it was $1.84 for a gallon of milk. And that just hurt my heart because I know what that farmer had to put in to make, you know, to make that gallon. And to be able to go to Walmart and, like you said, these industrialized farms where they're not caring for their animals maybe the same way, um, there's a real problem with that. And so to educate, you know, people on where where your food is coming from is such an important aspect to all of this. Uh, just another couple lines here from the... Uh, last milking blog that Jenny wrote. Uh, again, if you're just getting in on the show, uh, Jenny Patnode is with us. She and her husband and her boys ended up um, having to sell off their dairy herd, and they kept some of the land, but this had been generations of being a dairy farmer in her husband's family. And she wrote this wonderful blog Uh, On the eve of the last milking, she said, I know the farm created my husband into the man he is, Mm -hmm. and I'm forever thankful for that. You can find a link to the last milking on our page and to the phones to Mel in Roseville. Hi, Mel. Uh, Good morning. Thanks for uh, for taking my call. But I just wanted to, uh, I farmed, I got out of the Navy in 1978, and I farmed till 1986, and I got washed out in that farm crisis that was going on then. Oh, yes. And the yeah. reason for my call is to express nothing but praise for those farmers that are hanging in there and working and providing our food every day. And I also want mm-hmm. to provide hope for those that realize it's not going to work out. And that was my case. I was married, and I had two daughters, and uh, and went in the bank, and they said, there was there wasn't any more money, and I was a second generation farmer on uh, on our farm, Carrie. Mm-hmm. So my dad was probably sixty four, and uh, we decided my family decided we were going to quit. And oh, as a result, what a what a decision, the- though, Mel. I mean, yeah, you know, because yeah. you saw your dad work it, and I'm sure his idea was this is going to go on in the family. Sounds tough. Abs- absolutely right, but. It worked out with this, in my case, with the support of my family. Nobody dwelled on the fact that we were giving up the family farm. My dad went out and he drove school bus locally, and we moved down to the city here to Roseville. My wife went to uh, work at Honeywell. I went to Oxford. Mm-hmm. My wife was more urban than I was. I was I was rural. I went from farming to the Navy back to farming, and uh, so I rode the bus to Oxford. And, and my wife gave me some advice. She said. Now, when you get on that bus, you don't have to talk to everybody. Not everybody wants to talk to you. <laughs> so I, I did that, and I rode my bike, actually, to Oxford, and I met a guy on the street 
that uh, we just chatted uh, every so often. And turns out he was in the grain industry. You want to know what I want to do? I said, I farmed, and I'd like to work in the grain industry. And he said, well, come to me and come to my office. So I worked for PV Grain Company for 13 years. There is life after... After farming, is. yeah, there's, Jenny, you you know that. Uh, I mean, your husband's yeah. making a life after farming. Yeah. You are too. Well, and that's you know that's one of the biggest hopes that I want to give to people because, like I said in the beginning, you lose a sense of identity. And we've heard here in the Midwest, there's such an an increase on the suicide rate, actually, of farm families of well of farmers of farmers who find it's, themselves it's um, in death can't get out of it. Yeah, if, if if you read the statistics, it's just shocking in the last couple of years. And even the town next to us, um, the farmer took his life. And so that has been one of our biggest hopes, my husband and, his, and I, is to just tell everybody there is life after farming. Um, after farming, I actually started a nonprofit called Box Purpose, where mm. I serve in Honduras, uh, serve women and girls in developing countries. And wow. now Weston actually, uh, my husband Weston, that he can get off the farm. He will actually be traveling with me next month um, to be able That's to good. do that because he never really got to travel before. But, and as I said too, he is now the agriculture teacher in the high school in the town that um, we, we lived and that we live right now. But just being able to teach the next generation of farming and so you know, there was that sense of loss, and for so long you wonder what's next. But we've talked to so many other people that there is hope. There, There is life after farming, and you take what you learned on the farm and you apply it somewhere else. And so that's what we've been doing. Well, congrats on the nonprofit. That sounds like really Thank needed you. work. Um, Mella says Thank on you. Twitter, Dad, age 80. Still working a 150-year-old 400-acre farm. Oh, my gosh. In southeast Minnesota. (laughs) Cattle and the hay and the grains that feed them, it's liberating yet suffocating. The missing generation. Dad was expecting to pass it on to a son. My sister has helped. She will retire next year and help dad more. Yeah, one of the things that we'll talk about on the other side of news, and we'll bring Hannah Breckbill in too, is what happens when members of the family, you know, the idea is that this is kind of a family legacy, and maybe the next generation doesn't want to, isn't interested in, isn't capable of stepping up to take care of the farm. I'm I'm hearing from some people on Twitter who are in that situation. So if that if that reminds you of where your family is at, I would love to hear about that as well. 651-227-6800-242-2828. Tell me about your experience of being a farming family in the Midwest, how that's tied to your sense of who your family is, who you are. And then tell me if you've had an experience of having to leave the farm. Maybe, again, the next generation wasn't interested or couldn't step in to run the farm. 800-242-2828. And on Twitter, at Carrie NPR. We'll go to Phil Picardi now for the latest news. Back to our conversation now. Jenny Patnode continues with us. She wrote a blog about the sale of her husband, hers and her husband's fourth-generation Wisconsin dairy farm. And she's joining us this morning from Menominee. And Hannah Breckbill is with us now, co-owner of the Humble Hands Harvest outside Decorah, Iowa. Hannah, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. 
Yeah, thanks for having Hi. me. Um, Jenny was describing to us her her husband's attachment to not just the work of farming, but the purpose and the meaning of farming. You're kind of new to this. How, how long have you been running the farm? Yeah, I started Humble Hands Harvest in 2013, so I've had seven seasons. So so tell Mm -hmm. me a bit about what it means to describe yourself as a farmer, not the mechanics of the farm, but, you know, this this identity as a farmer. Totally. It is an identity thing. Um, And yeah, what would I say? I, I guess the the attachment to the land is a real thing and it's it's interesting for me and farmers like me who didn't grow up on a farm um it's it's a really cool discovery to to kind of come into farming and realize how interconnected my life is with with what's going on around me um in the natural world and on the farm um so that's that's one of the things that i i just love and and wish that everyone had that connection yeah, it, it's it's interesting because I guess we think of farmers as, you know, kids who were indoctrinated into the rewards and the hard work of farming as kids, right? It's unusual that people, uh, what, I don't know, get a college degree and say, no, what I really see myself doing is running a farm. How How did this happen for you? Well, yeah, I would say that that narrative is really shifting in a lot of ways. Most of my farming peers, most like young farmers of specialty crops like me, so I grow vegetables and raise pastured pork and grass-fed lamb. Mm-hmm. Um, most most farmers like me are are have, do have college degrees. I would say are women <laughs> often. Excellent. And, um, um, and so we're we're coming into this with with kind of an idealism that um, that and all of those same kind of nostalgic um, cultural ideas about farming, but we're actually not not always seen as farmers <laughs> um, by other farmers um, by the farm by I the farm actually, family types of people. I actually got chills. I got chills when you said I'm connected to the land. You're a farmer. <laughs> when you said that, I'm like, yeah, he's a totally. <laughs> Just that connection, yeah, to your land. What, what, Jenny? What do you think of this idea? I mean, Hannah, as she describes, is part of a group of young women and and some experienced women who are coming in love it. to farming. Yeah, I mean, this may be the one bright that. spot. One well, of yeah, I mean. Like I said, with my nonprofit, it's all women empowerment. And I just love that with the shift that I talked about in society, you know, we might be losing a little bit of the nostalgia, but also we're gaining this whole other piece to farming and like the one color called, you know, called in that um, people can buy local and support these local farmers. And it sounds like that's kind of what she has with the growing the vegetables and thing is that. Um, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, Hannah, but I just love that people can better understand where their food is coming from and that it's it's women, too. You know, this doesn't just have to be men or the typical picture of what we have, but that with farming and, and society changing that more and more women are coming into this, too. Yeah. I mean, Hannah, I read I was on your website, which looks really, really good. And I read your description of mm-hmm. yourself 
a queer four-part harmony singing Mennonite. You've just blown up every stereotype (laughs) I think we have about farming, and that's a good thing. This really means that farming is changing, right? Totally, yeah. So, I yeah, I'm coming from from far, to farming from a very different kind of perspective, and that that means that I'm able to I'm able to do different things um, in the farming scene. I'm able to prioritize different different ways of farming um, and different ways of of interacting with my land. Um, that people who are locked into um, to kind of the further and further corporatization of agriculture are are getting stuck and and getting um yeah pushed out of um so that's yeah it's a really exciting thing to be able to enter farming and it's also a really um yeah it's it's just totally different the way that you have to do it now um we yeah, have a- definitely relying on on local food eaters. Yeah, we have a call actually from a chef who wants to talk about that to Michael in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Michael, I'm really glad you called. Tell me a little bit about what you do. Hi, Carrie. I love this conversation. Hannah, that's a great description. I, I think that's awesome. Um, I have a small restaurant in downtown Sioux Falls. Mm-hmm. Uh, we buy as much local ingredients as we can seasonally. Um, I myself actually have a small three acre farm where mm. I poorly grow vegetables and some apples and a couple of chickens. But my neighbors in South Dakota are primarily commodity growers, uh, corn and soybeans. And they're subsidized to grow these. But I think it's really, like, sad that, like, the agribusiness has created the system that perpetually kicks out the small actual farmer and uh, the farms become part of this bigger machine uh, I wish that there was more subsidizing of um, ingenuitive agriculture and would help build the actual culture part of agronomy and incentivize people to stay on their farms, milking their cows, being connected to the land. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll take your comments. Well, that. hang on one second, Michael, before you leave, because I like the way you put that. In some ways, I feel like we still see, you know, some of the CSA movement and some of the farm-to-table movement as a little precious, you know, kind of removed, not really accessible to to people in their daily lives. It's kind of, I think, I think there's a perception that it's reserved for a certain, you know, kind of person who's got the money for that. What if it was more integrated just into the everyday way that we think about eating? What, what would that look like? I really see that like the small farmer, the vegetable farmer, um, and then the big commodity ag farmer as like the, they don't talk to each other. They're totally separated from each other. Yeah. Uh, I think that both have plenty to learn from each other. Um, and I, I think that we often call out the commodity grower for not being good stewards of the land. I think they absolutely are. I think that they're working within a system, the individual farmer, that is just tearing them apart. Um, and, and then, like their kids are moving to cities and we have this brain drain of, of the rural world where like if we were to 
offer them some other incentives like growing Kernza, um, a, a plant that is fantastic for sustainability. Mm-hmm. We we could raise the prices of corn and soybeans by reducing their abundance, you know, and finding alternative crops for commodity growers to have. Let, let me bring Hannah back into this. Hannah, do you think what Michael's describing is is right? I mean, is is that something that you see from your perspective? Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, the the one thing that I want to bring up is is the idea that kind of I'm going to use the word corporatized agriculture has been talking about feeding the world for a really long time. That's right. Um, and we've forgotten about feeding our communities, um, feeding feeding our people locally. Um, people have been putting their stuff on on big markets and and not growing actual food that people eat <laughs> sometimes. Um, and and so what the local food movement is doing is bringing that back. And so my farm, we're in a town of people. And we only sell to our town um, and and we're able to make a living that way. Um, and that's yeah, it's a it's a kind of going back to a nostalgic time. But it's also a really important way to to bring. Yeah, to create connection and create vitality in rural communities. Jenny, how does that sound to you? Well, what I love that your caller said, the first thing is that these commodity farms and smaller farms need to talk to each other. And I love that there just needs to be, I think, more conversation between, you know, because we do have the sense by 2050, if people look at, you know, we have to try to feed the world's population and people are worried about, will we be able to continue to feed the growing population of the world? And so I like what he said. It doesn't make one one way different. I think both are needed. Both are so important um, to feeding society and feeding America. It's just that conversations like this need to take place between the larger farms and, and the smaller farms. Sue says on Twitter, my two sisters and I work full time off the farm, but we work with my dad on his small fruit farm, too. That's the amount of work it takes to make one living wage. We've been waiting for 15 years to move to the farm permanently, but it doesn't seem like a possibility anymore. And Lisa says we're the fifth generation on our Minnesota family dairy and have grown to have multiple employees and more land over the years. We still work seven days a week, and we still have a strong mm-hmm. connection to the cows and the land. We have young kids, and the work and the management every single day is hard because it never ends. Hannah, you signed up for that, right? I mean, you you don't have a dairy farm, but you still have to be there and working every single day. Yeah, it's a lot of work, and I'm I'm really lucky in that I've been able to create a farm business that employs me full time so I can be on the farm full time, which is not the case for most farmers. And, um, and that's a really um, problem. (laughs) It's a problematic thing that like, I think, I think the statistic I have here is that 70% of total farm family income comes from off of the farm. um, Wow. Um, And similarly, like the median income of farms in 2018 was negative $1,500. So people, yeah, people are working really hard on farms and they're also having to work off farm. And that's, that's a really problem because of, um, because of land stewardship. Like 
we we want to be able to take care of the land. And if people are being taken away from the land to have to make their money, um, they're not able to do as much um, for the soil or for for the ecosystems around them as as they would if they were able to spend more time on the farm. Uh, let me grab a call here from Mara uh, from the Fargo, South Dakota area. Hi, Mara. Thanks so much for waiting. W- what do you want to add to the discussion today? Well, <clears throat> what I wanted to mention, first of all, um, is we raised kids in the 80s and the 90s during tough farm times. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have a whole lot of money. But what we did with our money uh, was every nickel and dime went into educating our kids so that uh, that they would have uh, an income and, and a career off of the farm. Really? But uh, there has been a big change, which I really like, in the attitudes of us farmers. And I love seeing the commercials on TV, the programs that you, you have on about the the goodness of local food and and farming and everything because it just warms the uh, the hearts of those farmers out here and also when we retired from farming we wanted to stay on the farm and it's usually impossible by the way to do that but what we did is number one we had local farmers around us uh rent the farm, rent the land from ah, us. Okay. We didn't hire outside where it's a big-time farmer coming in and where they really don't take care of the land. They mine it, take all of whatever they can off of it. So your community then, of farmers came in to rent yes. that land. Mara, if I might, we only have a few minutes left, and I want to come back to uh, Hannah on this. Hannah, what do you think is most misunderstood about about farm, who the who this generation of farmers are, by those of us who didn't grow up on a farm and are kind of disconnected from it. Yeah, I mean, I I would say that the farmers, the new generation of farmers that I'm connected to, um, who are coming from from you know growing up in a city, um, they're coming to farming because of idealism, and they are. Um, they're wanting to take care of the land and take care of their communities. Um, that's that's a really common theme that I hear from farmers. Um, and the yeah, um, one thing that's really important to note is that a lot of us don't have we don't have capital. We're not inheriting land. We're not we're not yeah. Uh, we don't have a way to to buy in often. Um, so my farm is 22 acres. It's it's like nothing mm. um, compared to the rest of this Iowa landscape. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and so that that's an, also an interesting thing. Like we're yeah. we're um, real farmers. We're bringing people into rural communities, and we're doing it with very little land, <laughs> um, which is really interesting. Um, and it's it's really important to me to figure out how how the rest of this land. Um, around me is going to transition once the once re- uh, farmers are retiring and and leaving the land. Like I really want young farmers to be able to access it, and so we're going to need to build some systems to be able to get um, capital into the hands of young farmers. 
Hannah, uh, I wish you very well uh, with the Humble Hands Harvest there in Decorah, Iowa, as the co-owner here. Sounds like you have your work cut out for you. Thanks so much for being with us today. (laughs) Thank you. Really good to have you. Jenny, uh, just in a couple minutes here, do you and your husband dream about the time down the road, the kids have been to college or whatever, when you can maybe come back to farming on that family land? You know, so we actually, like I talked, we actually kept um, 200 acres. So we have our 200 acres of cropland that my husband still um, still crops. So like they were talking how you still work off the farm. We still have 200 acres that we do for corn and soybeans that he sells. And uh, one of the things that we did this last year is we actually invested in five beef cows. Because one of the things we wanted was for our boys, you know, it it was sad to just see this empty land and these empty buildings. And we invested into five, five beef cows, just that, you know, that farm to table thing that we've been talking about to, to continue to teach our two young boys. This is where food comes from. And this is the hard work that goes into it. And so eventually we would like to continue to increase or if the boys would like to, you know, continue to buy into that beef herd, um, we're not pushing it on them, but just kind of showing them where, where food comes from is our hope. So, Jenny, thank you so much. Thanks for doing this. Really good to have you on the well, show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Jenny Patnode's post is called The Last Milking. You just heard a recording of a live radio show from NPR News. If you'd like to hear more conversations like this, subscribe to our podcast. And thanks for listening.